You said you encountered Bobby Baker in your doctoral work, but didn't have that close of a link. I encountered her before. I was studying my master in Edinburgh, and I was already sort of tackling upon the subject that would then become the subject of my PhD. Um, and it was, I, I wasn't really working with, I didn't know Bobby Baker, or was, I wasn't even working with close material, but I had a friend there um, that said, oh, if you're interested in autobiography, narrating of personal life, everyday experience, and so on, uh, within the field of art, you should check out Bobby Baker. And she's very British in the way she uses identity, so it, it was very interesting to, to learn about her in that context. But it was also quite hard because there wasn't much material. And later on, I went on to research about her, didn't include it in the PhD because of, well, you know, in a PhD, you always have to narrow a lot. And I was going to work exclusively on the 1990s, and it didn't mm. fit that period because she really starts working earlier, even if she works through the 90s. And um, But then I ended up going back to London for my PhD for a while, and my friend was there, and he introduced me to the artist herself, and then I continued to work and ended up um, putting together the show. When, when was she... When was the rise of her career? So Bobby Baker really, I mean, she's studying in the 70s. She really starts to become well-known with a performance piece that's called Drawing on a Mother's Experience, um, in which she is sort of, it's a fantastic performance, in which she's playing with the idea of uh, abstract expressionist painting, because while she was studying abstract expressionism was the predominant canon and what was most celebrated in the arts. And what's, so this, the, what's the decades? Um, the decades... Uh, in which abstract ex expressionism holds that kind of power in, in the UK? Well, I mean, in, in the States, it was definitely rising on the 40s, 50s, and 60s very predominantly. But then it echoes in the, thanks to MoMA, it echoes in the rest of the world. And actually, they have traveling exhibitions uh, all around Europe. And they even came to, to Spain, which was very rare during the, the Franco period. Um, and so in the 70s, abstract expressionism still very celebrated as the sort of maximum expression of the avant-garde ideals, right? Mm. And um, as you know, um, uh, education always goes slightly uh, in, in delay no, to the latest fashion. So while she was studying in the 70s, her professors were valuing and teaching uh, abstract expressionism as the maximum form. But she studied in London? She studies in London oh. in uh, the St. Martin School of Art. Mm. Uh, and she always speaks about how this was the absolute model. There were no role models of female artists. There was only one small book that mentioned one female artist, uh, which was Georgia O'Keeffe, but there was no images of her work. So she was always very unsure of how she could fit this scenario. And so... Does Georgia O'Keeffe too fit the... She doesn't quite fit the... She doesn't. Yeah. She doesn't. But she was one of the examples that sort of first became a little visible. She Just strangely may bridge also the... I mean, if you if the, the if we consider Rothko and then we consider, uh, you know, what came after... Um, I think that's what's fascinating about her and is her possibility of being 
both touching upon the canon of the time, touching close to this idea of abstraction and pure emotion transmitted to composition, form, and color, and then really doing something very different than what the abstract expressionists were doing mm. and playing with identity and issues of gender and playing with the representation of the female body within those forms and also with American folklore. So mm. she was doing... I think much more exciting work, uh, not not uh, than Rothko or Gottlieb or, or Pollock, but that what was promoted as part of that mm. movement. And um, do you see an interstitial? The, the way I guess I, I from the very periphery understand it, it, it sort of goes Rothko and Pollock and and you know de Kooning and all that, and then it goes to uh, Warhol. But is there an interstitial? Like it goes from abstract expression to, I guess, what would be pop. Well, you would have, um, you would have, I would say, uh, less visible a revival of sort of realism in American representation, which is, I guess, the step towards uh, um, pop art and work and so on. And then more or less, almost in parallel, we start to see uh, the minimalist in mm. New York with Dan Flavin and Saul Lewitt and so on, mm. already in the 60s. Mm. And so so Bobby Baker's studying and she... So she's studying in London. With abstract, the echo of abstract... And is that, is that commonly how it occurs where there's a... Is there a delay in which things transmit across the pond? And, and to academic teaching, there's definitely a delay across the pond unnecessarily for example with the feminist movement it's going to happen very much at the same time Mm. in in los angeles and in london so in the 70s we're going to see like the rise of certain art practices and movements and tendencies uh that are not yet connected or visible to each other Mm. at the same time in the two sides of the ocean right but um in this case well, I don't know if you know, I, I always mention this title because I love it. There's this, I can't remember the name of the author right now, unfortunately, but there's this uh, book called How New York Stole the Idea of the Avant-Garde from Paris. And it describes very well already in the title this argument of how during the Cold War, um, the states found in abstract expressionism a way, a, a great representation of their political ideals of individuality, freedom of expression, um, individual creativity, creativity, the idea of the genius, and um, how that is the perfect way to take sort of the the continuation of European culture after the war. So mm. they sort of presented with this movement America as the inheritor once uh, Europe is devastated. That's interesting. I mean, I know there's a similar trend in uh, uh, fashion mm-hmm. where... Um, mm-hmm. With they, the new style and... Yeah, and I remember there's a very specific period in which um, the there used to be this common practice where during Fashion Week in Paris and so on, um, American garment manufacturers would fly to Paris, either buy or sketch or document somehow the, you know, rising fashions and then go back and produce knockoffs of it. But then there's a flip that occurs where the actual design engine within the U.S. starts to kick in mm-hmm. and the opposite trend starts to happen. 
Yeah. And this is a phenomenon that really happened a little bit across the arts, right? While Europe had been the center of Western culture and therefore perceived almost as the center of culture in the world, um, New York is going to try to, well, it's going to try not, it's going to reclaim that uh, space after the war and with the new economical situation that is very different, but also with the fact that so many artists just uh, fled uh, Paris and went to, to mm. New York or Chicago. That's the case of architecture with Chicago, but not so much with art. That's interesting that then the in the case of the abstract expressionists, their legacy, maybe the final moments of it occurs back in Europe then. I mean, in terms of a Rothko exhibit for the Seagram, it's mm -hmm. in Europe, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. It's it's the recuperation or, or the appraisal of that history no? that had been drawn in Europe and finalized in the States. And then the States is, it's interesting to read. I mean, there's a lot of conspiracy theory about it, but it's interesting to see the kind of political uh, agenda behind many of MoMA's promotion, which makes sense because a national museum has to promote national art to a certain extent, so it's not a hidden agenda, but it's interesting to see that promotion. And in that sense, absolutely, uh, the UK and the rest of Europe and particularly academic studies or uh, fine art studies were looking back at the states as a model at that time. Mm. And abstract expressionism was the absolute form. And there you find Bobby Baker who doesn't find she can express her concerns and her ideas and her issues through painting, uh, let alone abstract painting. So you're going to find, uh, and this is part of what I tried to show in the exhibition, that already in those first years, you see the tendencies towards the radical transgressions she's going to make in the forthcoming years, moving away from painting as exclusive format, moving away from non-subject to everyday subject, which is the most do you say dismissed uh, mm. subject of them all? No, it's not a historical painting. It's not a religious painting. It's not a still life. It's just everyday material. And she's going to start to make those breaks already there. And um, she has this moment in which she decides to present an art piece as her final uh, piece for one of her courses, which was she said she loved baking cakes. And she had been taught to bake cakes, and she was great at it, and she loved it, and she loved buying all the items and the tools. And she was actually very interested in why did she find so much pleasure in that realm, and why was she so good at this, and why was that a practice so unrecognized and undervalued. And so she presents this art piece, which is... Um, a converse boot, like a converse trainer, made out of cake. Mm. And she said it for that time, it didn't come out really well, and it was sort of tacky and, and an ugly cake. Okay. And she presented quality it. of the cake wasn't so good. <laughs> yeah, or, or or you know the the decoration, and and she she brought it to to class and presented it as her final project and entitled it a great uh, piece of art or the greatest. A piece of artwork or something like that and she said that everybody laughed and she felt very bad about this laughter when she was trying to make mm. a statement about art and canon and what is expected to be valuable and not and what is beautiful and is not or properly done or not. I'm going to betray my uh, uh, sort of deep lack of historic timeline here but is this pre-Duchamp? 
No. And there we can go into a long line. But actually, it is a sort of Duchamp-like action. Yeah. But Duchamp had already been sort... What is interesting, I always find about Duchamp, is he's, he ended up being known for almost... The, with the case of the fountain that mm. turned around a toilet that he signed with a fake signature and presented. He didn't really present it in the royal salon. He just put it in, took a picture and run away because it was a felony to, to put a, a piece like that into the royal salon. And then actually the piece was never shown. It's actually just mm. a newspaper mm, story that came out that Duchamp made to come out. With the photo that he With took. With the photo that he took, that that was an art but that was never exhibited in an art space at the time, right? Wait, so how did he do that? I mean, so he brought a, a toilet? I don't know how much of it is myth. I don't know if he really brought it in. Like, there's so many mythical narratives around the avant-garde, and you never know how much of it is narratives they were also constructing or things that are for real. But what is uh, proof? Meaning, meaning he could have taken the photo in a different context? In a different then? context. Ah, which so would maybe, make more sense. It, it would make more sense. The idea is that um, huh. he took it in the uh, official salon and then uh, fled the scene, but he probably didn't he just probably made a mock-up space for it just to be presented now in the in the plinth and yeah and what is really interesting it was never shown like that the public never came into an exhibition space and found that at the time Uh, it was only a, a, a story run in the newspaper and for Duchamp this was about um rejecting the idea of genius that was so powerful to the avant-garde and so powerful to the modernist or avant-garde movements such as abstract expressionism, the idea that creativity and geniality comes from within, that comes from certain kind of personalities, that you either have it or not, and that you have this raw vision and expression that comes in through into your painting and is therefore um, something special and should be valued by the audience, right? Duchamp was radically rejecting that. Dadaists were very critical of what they understood uh, avant-garde as a form of bourgeoisie consumption of a new luxury good in the name of art, right? They Mm. thought that avant-garde painting had become just a way to please the bourgeoisie, right? And to have this exclusive, one-of-a-kind objects to show in their living room. And they were rejecting art as a whole and the idea of genius and the idea of creativity. And that's why he's doing these gestures of the objet trouvé. Um, And the idea is to try to find objects where you have no control, no implication, your taste doesn't go into it. Because the idea for Duchamp is that taste is not the power of the genius, it's rather the control of society, which gives you a a canon of what is beautiful and what is not, what is Mm. to be appreciated and not. It's very unusual how, I think this happens with modernism and architecture too, the a lot of, um, again, the, the term sort of deteriorates when you dig into the fringes and so on. But if there's this thing called modernism, let's let's say it, and a lot of the architects, I think within that timeline, probably understood of themselves as blue collar. Maybe not as we conceive of it today, but sort of working class. They, they cons- saw themselves as being somehow proletariat in nature. And maybe they were challenged within proper proletariat circles, but 
that that's how they uh, I know for instance Le Corbusier this was very much the case absolutely but with Jackson Pollock Rothko I think the, the, the there's a quote of Rothko where he hates paying anything over like three dollars for lunch or something that you know he thinks of it as in- incredibly bourgeoisie mm-hmm. and and they well and Pollock and there we could um, go into another direction but Pollock originally so before the mama starts recognizing his work he's part of the communist party so yeah. he's recognizing and um Picasso was as well uh, mm. and their idea is that they are not the bourgeoisie and they are, if not working class, they are aligned with the interest of the working class. And they're trying to find uh, the visualization or the ideation of a new world and a new century, right, that is going to be opposed to the division of class that we've seen in the previous century, etc. That's part of the idealism of modernity or, or sort of, no, and the role the artist is going to play. But what data is thought is that even if those are the ideals, uh, the production of this artist are coming into the service of the, bourge- of the bourgeoisie. How did they balance that? I mean, how did they balance the underpinning thought behind the art and the fact that the art was being consumed by an, the upper class? I guess... Um, did they recognize it? Was it ever vocalized as a, an issue? I, I don't know I don't know enough to to assure, but I haven't found anything in which that is vocalized. They have this idea. What I do find is perpetually this notion of um and and Buñuel, the cinematographer, put it in, in a term I always love, which is trabajo alimenticio, like feeding jobs. So yes. There is a sort of underlying discourse that they have to sell. They have to produce for the bourgeoisie and for the market because otherwise they can't go on living. But that their true work is not at the service of that um, class. So, yes, there is a sort of inner contradiction that is sorted out through the idea that there needs to be a certain paying job, right? And in that sense, they have to sell their work. The problem with the avant-garde is that they thought their art as depoliticized or rejecting the discourse of um, the majority, uh, but because it was tending towards abstraction, it was very easy to put any content in the art. No, It served the purposes of Francoism at one point. It served the purposes of uh, the Cold War... Um, United States itself, the purposes of the um, uh, Spanish Republic just before the Civil War. So it's it's been able to sort of form, uh, conform to different discourses. One of the most digestible, um, let's see, philosophical analysts, uh, Slavoj Žižek, but he, he mentioned something like this about music. I think Firdelis how it's used by both egalitarian and authoritarian regimes as their national anthem. But the, the thought was basically, again, that this if you have a blank slate, you can project a great deal on it. Who was um, Frido Kahlo's husband? Um, Diego Rivera. So he exclusively worked in mural form, right? If not exclusively. Substantially. Yes. So was that... I mean, I would think there may be... Uh, framework in which if you do a mural it goes beyond consumption yes and actually Rivera was 
you couldn't align it with this discourse of the avant-garde. Rivera and Frida Kahlo are very political. They're very much engaged with... Hey, properly political now. I mean, Trotsky and... yeah. And they were engaged in representing in other forms. But before we go completely <laughs> <laughs> off track... Uh, I, Bobby Baker. And, and the thought I was heading <clears throat> towards, which is this idea of trying to transgress uh, every format that was given and every canon that was given because it was a canon where she as an artist didn't recognize herself. This is going to lead her towards not doing so much art until the early 80s. And it's in, I think, 1888 or 1889. Now I'm not sure. Um, 1988. Sorry, yeah, 1988. Yeah. 1988. She's 160. No. <laughs> <laughs> so at the end of the 80s is when she presents this performance, Drawing on a Grandmother's Experience. And it's there when we see for the first time all the transgressions to the, to the models that she had been taught in. So she starts, her work starts in the 70s, but it's really in the 80s that it becomes visible. Um, and her training was in the 70s? So she finishes in the 70s. She's working for a while, um, again, trying to get paid. So she's working for photographers and as an art assistant, and she's producing a little bit her own works, but on the side because she doesn't yet have any funding to produce them. And one of the first works she produces that uh, I, I think it's already fantastic is... Um, an edible family in a mobile home. And for that, she got a sort of um, artist residency in, in a, a collective housing system in the outskirts of London. And she is um, she's moved there with her family. His, her partner is a photographer. They've already, I think, by then had one kid. I don't know. I'm not sure. And what she decides is in order to integrate herself in the surrounding community of this artist housing, which she said was not at all connected to the artist world. And we're actually, she's always very concerned with how art towards the end of the 20th century has become completely elitist and how the people that would go and see abstract expressionism and visit the museum were not the people she was in mm, contact mm. with and she was interested in reaching. So she decides, she's part of this artist community, but she decides to create an installation that would reach out to the working class neighborhood where this was situated. And she uh, rents a van and installs within the van a this um, strange uh, installation, and I, I say strange installation because we're at the very early stages of installation art. I mean, Dada's had done a little bit of installation, Surrealist, we can argue, had done a little bit of installation, and we can see instances of installation art with some conceptual artists, but it's really um, in the late 70s, 80s that we start to see some experimentation. And she creates in the van this home in which the inhabitants are the mother, the father, uh, the daughter, and the baby, if I recall correctly. And they were all made out of cake. So the people could come in, the people from the different houses out of, after school or after work could come in and eat the family as the exhibition went through. Mm. Um, and it was fantastic because the mother 
was made with a head that was a teapot that had this automated system that as you would come in, she would bend her head like the, the this kind of mechanical structure would bend the head and pour tea. A little bit describing the figure of the British mother you now always providing a tea and welcoming the visitor. And she said it was a fascinating installation because it really engaged an audience that she wasn't used to in relation to the art world. And people were devouring the sculptures and it was so unconventional to see sculptures made out of food. Um, so what's the common, the, what's the public reaction to it? This is the fascinating one to me is that what you just described would seem to me uh, a type of art that would perplex the non-elite public. To, I mean, to put it in the, the, the terms that we're discussing, in the sense of the, the museum goer, in a sort of fanatical sense, could probably contextualize that and put it in some reactionary format. But how? how so how is it conceived? I think surprisingly, uh, Bobby Baker perceived, per perplexes yeah. more the art world with already all the elite uh, notion of knowledge of the trajectory of art than the... I don't know how to call it, lay audience, maybe. Yeah, um, that's a better term. Uh, yeah. So the lay audience actually just didn't stop to think, is this art? Is this transgressing the traditional format of art? Is this, uh, what is this trying to say? They just came in and engaged and played with the ideas and interacted with each other. And uh, so I think... Well, I don't like the way I've put it because I'm for formulating it in a way as if the lay audience were not challenging it. What I'm saying is they're not trying to integrate it into an art historical narrative. Mm. So there is no concern about is this okay as an art format or not. There's just the engagement with the artwork and what the artwork brings and what the artwork is commenting about family life and about engaging with art as touching it and playing. And Bobby Baker said she never expected what a terrifying image the half-eaten baby <laughs> cake would be <laughs> midway through the exhibition. <laughs> but all of that played upon reactions of, um, yeah, family life, family roles, who's um, positioned in each situation. And in that sense, again, that happened with this great uh, performance piece, which is drawing on a mother's experience. After that, Bobby Baker goes into a period in which she has two kids. And as we are starting to see you and I with one kid, having mm. two makes work very hard, mm. especially if you're an artist. And she said that for a while, she only felt she could dedicate time to jobs that earned her money. Uh, and so she had to sort of stop working as an artist. Um, she makes a very interesting piece uh, during this years. She said she felt very frustrated by the fact that what she thought was an ex exciting step in life, which was motherhood and continue with her career, had become a, a process of devaluation of her status, right? Mm. That she had a higher status as an art student than as a young mother with two kids. And... She said she didn't have time to work, but she wanted to explore this. And she decides to do privately a piece that has been exhibited for the first time in the, in the exhibition I put together. That's called Time Drawings. And it's 
the mechanism, you know, like students in art school have to draw every day, every day. So she reestablished this pattern and she sits down every day to draw. But the moment something interrupts her, whatever she's cooking, the kids, something she has to go and do or an errand or whatever, she just stops. And she times the time she's had uh, to dedicate to the drawing. So some drawings are 10 minutes, some are two, some are 25. And she said it was important to her to time it and to regulate the fact that it was very hard to do that motherhood and the professional life of trying to earn some money was the opposite of the creative process, right? In mm -hmm. which you need reflection and abstraction and time to concentrate on something. And she wanted to prove to herself why she wasn't able to produce a new artwork. But she also wanted to use that as a way of exploring her new situation. And the drawings are fascinating because they play along the lines of what was very transgressive at the time, which is depicting uh, motherhood as a non-necessarily one-lined positive experience, uh, what it was depicting creativity as also something that doesn't just come through through inspiration, no? Depicting everyday life and the structures and the pressures uh, that exist in what seems just... Um, natural or normal or common right mm. and she starts to analyze there or to pick up through those drawings the the inner tensions and problematics that we all encounter but that are so normalized could i ask the um transgressive is this a uh, is a term that has quite a bit of weight within art history yes so how do you how do everything you define is it? transgressive in art history <laughs> it's breaking a norm right so already the avant-garde was a transgression because they moved away from academic painting, which was um, the one that was based on, on representing a three-dimensional space, perspective, uh, clean surface, not allowing the viewer to see the brushstroke. No, that was the aim of the 19th century painting. The avant-garde is going to transgress all those norms by going towards abstraction, showing of the brushstroke, b-dimensionality, you know, recognizing the, the true format of the painting, which is a plain surface, all of that. And then we could say the 60s and start to transgress the norms that had then become the canon established by the avant-garde by moving away from painting and by experimenting other formats such as performance and installation art, but also by tackling on actual issues and critical views of society and not remaining in the realm of abstract expression of emotion. And Is the, is the um, breaking of boundaries uh, a common theme though that you can observe even within like the 16th 17th 15th century i mean i, I recall um rembrandt speaking of he did this piece uh, i think it's about a surgery um medical school depiction mm -hmm, or something mm -hmm. and he said he found it quite boring because he wasn't allowed to establish his own authorship and the ones where he thought that were quite stronger pieces of work were the ones where he could expose his brushstroke and would that, I mean, would that be a microcosm of what you're describing hits full steam in the 60s? Yes, and we could say Velázquez is also going in that direction, no? He's starting to, or El Greco, no? They're playing with this challenging of the norm. 
But I would say before the 18th and 19th century, that academic norm was less pressing because you didn't learn art through royal academies as you did in the 18th and 19th centuries. Mm. So it's the moment in which we start to have enough official format to learn to be an artist and you're not just training yourself in the random workshop of this or that artist the moment you start to train that there's an official training which is the 18th century is when the norms of art are going to become extreme hmm. before as long as you can find a nobleman or any rich commissioner to be fascinated by your painting there is, I think, a little bit more space for breaking that norm. What's the time period in which that gets established, the institutions in, in the... 18th century. Like, generally. are we talking mid-1700s? Mid yeah, mid-1700s. Yeah. By the end of the 18th century, the Royal Academies in London and in Paris are already working. Um, the Spanish Royal Academy, I, I think, is around that time, too. I mean, I just I, I'm just trying to remember the the French Revolution and the the art that's produced from there, and it sounds it but seems like it's coming from deeply established. If you think, for example, of Jacques Louis David, who mm. is a perfect example of the absolutely academicist painter, everything is in a perfect perfect perspective, absolutely organized. You know what to look at first and later. The composition is absolutely yeah. classical. You don't see a glimpse of a brushstroke. Everything is a perfect finishing. And he continues to do that even as he moves from one political position to another, right? So while he's painting Napoleon, he's painting like that. But when he's painting the death of Marat, he's mm. painting in that way too. So there, there could be transgression again in terms of the subject of painting and actually neoclassicism tried to move into the representation of civic values and other things, unlike the previous painting, which was majorly um, the monarchic powers, the noble powers, and the religious powers, right? So there's already, in terms of theme, a moving away from that. And we're going to see French realism painting, for example, peasants and other kind of scenes. But still, the format is very rigorous. The way mm. the, the format or the medium, the way it is produced, is very rigorous. Mm. But so, um, so the depiction of the, the the common folk. I mean, the in, in term from again my very deeply shallow uh, understanding of that history. I mean, sort of Van Gogh painting the potato peelers. Is that what we're talking about? Where suddenly there's a shift of of subject matter. There's a double shift uh, happening there. You're mentioning uh, Van Gogh, and I would say they're already with the Impressionists. They're abandoning both uh, traditional subjects of representation, because traditional subject of representation was always historical painting, religious painting, um, still life as a minor gen genre, uh, portraiture and self-portraiture as a secondary genre too. Uh, and therefore starting to paint just scenes of everyday life in the cities or of the countryside or a pond. Uh, even the landscape was a very minor genre that sort of appears in the 19th century. So uh, 
very rarely landscape was only the backdrop to other subjects. So it's a transgression in terms of subject matter that you would dare to dedicate such a valuable thing as an art piece to the peeling of a potato, but also the way in he, which he's doing it. So basically moving towards not the complete abandonment of perspective, but a pretty great abandonment of the perspective technique. Uh, and it's interesting because many of these artists, such as Picasso, had been trained in very rigid academia, and they were very good. It's not that they didn't know, which is what um, was often said when they were being criticized. It's not that they didn't know how to do a proper perspective and a perfect finishing or a perfect composition. It's that they didn't want to be constrained by that. They found there were more possibilities of expression and of reflection of painting itself if you move outside of it. I was always fascinated by how, how I, I, I thought of it. There was a partnership with a, or a relationship with how Corbusier was depicted in his body of work and how Picasso was. The, the way Picasso was, I thought it, they often framed as a very rigidly linear thing. But then when you look at his work, he's skipping back and forth between formats, styles, content, subject matter. Corbusier had a very similar one. They... They, um, I think they typically say like pre-Ronchamp and post-Ronchamp, um, but there's two houses, I think. One is Maison Monol, one is Maison Jaoul. I forget which comes first and which comes second, um, but there's, it's the same thing. Like there, there's actually a very uh, hopping format to the way they uh, um, sort of are very flexible at engaging with interests that they may have in one moment and then hop to something else in another. And I think this is something that happens, and you're mentioning Picasso, and I'm, uh, well, I'll tell you in a minute what it makes me think about, but I think this is something, so we're starting to talk about Bobby Baker, and we're already saying, well, the problem with the canon, with the pre-existing canon of art history, with the sort of gender norms, and social norms associated to the figure of the artist as genius. And I think that's a huge imposition upon, or a huge boundary that uh, left many practitioners outside of the realm or the expectation that they could be artists or the recognition that they could be. But I think it's a huge imposition even on those artists that were celebrated by this narrative. So I think even for Picasso, I mean, it went well for him in the sense that Picasso had a successful life, an incredibly productive career, and was enormous, enormously visible. But then if you come to really look in depth at the work of Picasso, what you see is that what is being made visible and what is canonized is only a narrative and a, a view upon it that is also restrictive, restrictive for him as an artist. So, but he was also deeply in control of his publications, no? He was, but uh, for example, all the line of work he's doing representing, and this is what uh, an article I, I'm just um, commenting on recently, and, and the argument is very interesting, and they're exploring all the production that Picasso did representing prot prostitutes with certain disease, uh, um, sexual diseases, uh, and, and the representation of all those diseased bodies and sexualized bodies, which is a very transgressive thing and a very radical thing and definitely not what the bourgeoisie wanted to look at. Um, but the only glimpse we have in the history of art of that is the Damoiselle d'Avignon. 
And mm -hmm. the only reason we have a glimpse for that, or the only two reasons we have a glimpse for that, uh, is one that that painting is in the MoMA, but that that painting is supposedly the predecessor of Cubism. Mm. So it's purely through formal notions that we've come to hear about this work and all the visibilization of those other identities and bodies that existed in the cities and that Picasso is reclaiming is invisibilized. Mm. So what he did had a large control over his production and what he made visible, but the canon or or what comes inside of the realm of recognized art is always uh, restrictive in that mm. sense too, even mm. for a figure like Picasso. I mean, if, if Picasso does have, I mean, I remember it's a very unusual one. Maybe Picasso is sort of the um, turning point. I know Corbusier, for instance, sort of is that timeline where a person's biography is being celebrated while the person's still alive which i think puts a very i mean dali maybe is the weirdest one of this right i mean his autobiography his uh day-to-day -day journals where you can i remember reading them in undergrad where you could see this transition slowly happening where in the beginning stages he's writing in a journal format and then quickly he realizes there's an audience and then he starts to become the caricature of the person he's He's depicting. This really tackles upon my field of specialty, which has mm. been self-representation, self-narration, diaries, autobiographies, self-portraits, and all that line. And it's interesting because pe people you're mentioning, it's really all the artists that were part of the modern movements, artists and architects, they were very conscious of this idea of the value of their work being connected to their individuality. And therefore, the value of their individuality would, or the presentation of a valuable, rare, special individual is going to enhance the value of their production. And this is something that Dali is going to play up in a very excessive way, but Picasso Le Corbusier are playing with, and, and many other authors. And if you come... Well, we can swing it back to Bobby Baker, I suppose, because the way you depicted the, talked about the drawings, these deeply autobiographic, in the time that I was curious, does she put like a time of day that it starts in a time of day? It's always one day, in, in one day, the moment in which she can start to paint. But does she say And like, then she interrupts it and never goes back to it. It, it says like started at 8.46 p.m. Oh, no, she just says this date. And when she finishes, it says two minutes, three minutes. Ah, okay. You don't know if it's morning or afternoon. It or could what. be quite fascinating if she had those. Because, I mean, in a way, it's she's doing her own data gathering. But in this sense, what is interesting is if during... And we were talking about modernity and then what we could say postmodernity, no, and all the reactions against this canon of modernity that had been established. And you were mentioning Warhol, and Warhol is already a rejection of that canon. And Warhol is going to play up the idea of individuality and the obsession with the figure of the artist, but he's going to play around it. And there's this famous quote... Uh, by Andy Warhol. He wrote uh, this autobiography. I think it was called My Autobiography from 
A to B and from B to C, and it's just a sort of absurd autobiography in, he, in which he says that we will all have our 15 minutes of fame and all of these famous phrases by uh, Warhol, in which he's playing with this idea of permanent visuality, no? visualizing ourselves and our lives. And there he says, if you want to know everything about Andy Warhol, just look into any of my paintings. It's just there. Everything is there. There's nothing deeper behind it. And it's this idea that modernity had obsessed itself with this idea of the true um, core self of an individual is a little bit like a fruit, no? Like the center is dif more difficult to access, but it's more essential to its being, right? Mm. And there is this understanding and many philosophers trying to analyze, well, um, are we inheriting a society of secrecy where intimacy is the most secret part of you and your individuality is the hardest thing to know? Or are we also in the crisis that modernity is going to produce in terms of the individual and, and how, how can we preserve individuality in the capitalist age? And so Bobby Baker comes into this discourse, uh, which is this ideal of the artist being the valuable thing and his art the product and therefore the extension of that value of the expression of that exceptional being is going to be very much criticized and art is going to turn to be rather than an expression of an individual an observation of society and a criticism of society which is what postmodernism is doing mm. in every realm and in a way, Bobby Baker is trying to do that. She's going to look at her everyday life, at those things that have been deemed the most irrelevant, the most worthless to look at, and try to understand what is political, what has to do with power structures there, what is constraining to the individual, what is enlarging or, en or stimulating for the individual within those structures, and also... Um, why have certain things come to be deemed as worth of being made visible and which are being made invisible? And invisible does, is through taboo, but also through irrelevance, no? Yeah. How, how, does, uh, how does, in terms of public, it, let's try to figure this out, public versus um, academic uh, understanding of her work, is, is Bobby Baker... And maybe her own understanding of her work. Does she see Bobby Baker, the artist, as being the thing being digested? Or is the work the thing? Is, does she see her presence in front of the work or behind it? Or does she think of herself as sort of this invisible conduit that's merely observing and giving critical analyses? Let's see. Um, Obviously, you can't. I guess there's a limit to how much you can step in her shoes. Uh, well, I, we've had so many conversations about these things and about how to represent this. I mean, what my academic answer immediately would be is that's already a certain um, modern understanding of self. So mm. if you're dividing between herself, the self of the artist and the self of the work and are they the same or not but uh, to play into that notion what i think um can i ask do you think the public i, I don't know how to frame it i think the lay public it's, it still feels sort of derogatory sort of way of framing it but the i think it's the best term we have probably do you think that distinction isn't present there i would say two things 
first that after creating a show and being in contact with a large amount of audiences, I've discovered to my embarrassment, there is a tendency to infantilize audiences. And mm. I tend to assume that there are certain philosophical, theoretical concepts that I've been going over and reading and reading that they're not going to catch. And it's fascinating what certain works of art can do to bring up themes and issues that are there and you don't need to read Foucault to tackle upon them, you know, or to be able to engage with those issues. So I'm not sure if I can state what the audiences fully engage with, perceive or understand. I think there's a general tendency to identify Bobby's work with Bobby Baker herself. But I think that tendency is particularly, and, and in many other uh, artists, and this is actually the argument of my PhD, that uh, many artists, particularly if they are non-normative identities for one reason or, an, or another, uh, their work is shown always through the kind of uh, label of autobiographical. And they are perceived as the expression of this non-normative subject's life, the rare traumatic or alternative life of this rare being. And that's why it is mm. reworked or trauma is um, kind of uh, overcome through the art practice. And this is a normal artist, uh, art historical narrative, no? Art is a means through which non-canonical identities have overcome trauma. And the funny one is within, um, I would say, a, a lot of, I mean, I hate the term creative, but creative circles that say design, architecture, art, and so on, the, the notion of this societal anomaly mm -hmm. um, is almost... Uh, idealized to the point where um, students, practitioners, I'd say even scholars try to forcefully create it. And I think this has something to do with uh, some connection to the um, um, compulsive all-nighters mm -hmm. you see in, yes. in you this know, they're trying to create essentially this image of the starving artist that, you know, happened and organically for some. And the roughness and how yeah. difficult, no? pulling this out was and this is actually something I always tell my students I've never worked after 12 at night never a mm. single day in my life I don't think it's necessary I think it's probably a path towards unless you're particularly good at working at night and you want sleep during the day but non-sleeping it's not the path to produce good work and it's ultimately going to undermine it and it just gives you this sort of image of creativity that I think it it's very tied to modernity yeah. to the bohemian artists struggling you know but still making it because it's within them and I'm very against this narrative and the, the, I think the frightening one is there are anomalies within the world that did successfully work within that model I, I mean two that I can give like Michelangelo and Arthur Rubinstein Right. Michelangelo apparently worked for so long of a time with his boots on that when he took his boots, it took skin off with them. The, I think the key word there is apparently. <laughs> what I would say is art history has built this myth, uh -huh. has been very strong. At, 
when did art history start? It starts basically around the time, well, I mean, in the Renaissance, of course, with the first attempts at an idea of individuality, right, and the valuing of individuality. And it is reinforced in the 19th century when we're going to start to see the glimpses of modernity. And, it, and of course, we're also seeing the... And, and this is a larger discussion, but it's also the key moments in the development of capitalism and the idea of individuality being connected to private property, to the ownership of ideas, of ways of producing creativity, etc. No? But there must be, I mean, I don't know, the in terms of Michelangelo, from what I understand, the documentation of this occurs in a time period when it's not really a posh thing to be working at this pace and that he's sort of seen as a complete oddball within society because of but that's what Giorgio Vasari did a lot uh -huh. Giorgio Vasari so the first the origins of art history so the first book that we could call an art historical book in which the central subject of the book is art and not as before in Greek or Roman texts where artists mention it as part of other histories or other narratives the first time we see a book dedicated to art is, well, a series of three books, actually, is Giorgio Vasari's um, Lives of the Artists, no? Uh, the, the lives of the greatest painters, architects, uh, and sculptures, right? That's what he's defining. And all that is defined by a methodological structure in which Vasari plays upon two um, concepts. One is the concept of the connoisseur, which validates his position, which is in order to speak about art and to understand art, you need to be trained in looking at art. And that's why me, Vasari, is a necessary figure in this it's narrative. He is. he is the connoisseur. He I is see. the connoisseur. Yeah. And the other one is the humanist view, which is any product is valuable in relation to the figure that produced it. No? And humanism is key to the Renaissance when Vasari is writing his, mm. his work. And so Vasari is going to identify through his position of connoisseur which artists are going to be worth speaking about. But he's going to speak about the artist, not about a series of artworks. Oh, fascinating. So it's the life of the artist, and through the life of the artist, you get to hear about their work. So already there in that very origin of art history, of art history we have this valuing of, and, it, and it's from there that we have the stories of how, I don't know, uh, Caravaggio killed a man in Rome and was yeah. expelled of Rome. And it's a depiction of artists as individualized figures. So is then, uh, then perhaps the narrative I have is wrong then it is it, when Vasari is writing is there in that time a glorification of the artist sacrificing the the self the physical the health in pursuit of art I don't think yet uh, I think I think there's already an idea of a certain isolation and obsession towards uh, a goal but there's still, I mean, in, 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 in a large part, if you read Vasari, what he's valuing is were these enlightened figures, were artists reading um, books, traits, were artists in contact with other artists. So it's a lot of that what is being analyzed. No, were they humanists to a certain extent, which is what was uh, largely valued. Mm, but there's already this kind of anecdotic narrative of the greatest artists as peculiar individuals, no, as having traits of individuality. Oh, I see. So Caravaggio 
Vasadi is not writing about Caravaggio because yeah. Caravaggio happens later, but the way Caravaggio was written about is and following And perceived up. publicly, he's, he's sort of a wild, interesting fellow. Yeah. And so Michelangelo is the same. Um, I don't know that Michelangelo is described at the same because it, it's the idea that artists should be wild fellows uh, is a late 19th century, early 20th century idea. No, with romanticism. It's a romantic idea. But romanticism happens at the time in which much of art history is being rewritten or written, right? So we're going to take from this anecdote that the the previous art historians wrote are going to be extrapolated, are going to be exaggerated, and are going to become uh, part of the common knowledge of art history. So what I would say is, no, during the period in which Vasari is writing, those are sort of small anecdotes to give you a glimpse of an individuality. But what they were concerned with is this individual is worth it as much as his knowledge, understanding of the world, worldliness, views of the world, etc. Mm. And that's why they were valued. Uh, and that's why their life stories and where they had lived and who they had been in contact with and which libraries they had had access to is what's going to be uh, relevant. But in those anecdotes um, that are narrated are going to be very much recovered during the 19th century. Mm. 19th century romanticism is when Mm, French romanticists basically or German romanticists are going to reclaim the idea of art for art's sake mm. and this is the first time that there's this idea that an artist is crazy about his work and is going to undergo anything to produce his work and is going to take in pain well the idea of romantic love is the same no it's a little bit this idea of passion and that passion has to come with struggle and with pain right there's this um I assume there's a great deal of fictionalization that goes into it, but there's this really nice movie on the relationship between Van Gogh and Gauguin. Mm -hmm. I think it's called The Yellow House. Mm -hmm. um, but I remember this scene where Gauguin is basically trying to lecture Van Gogh on the importance of keeping cool temperament, cool logic that you should draw and paint and, and engage in the practice of art through this um, almost robotic tranquility so you can properly gaze into the i guess into the truth of the universe mm -hmm. and he and, and van gogh is sort of in his um in a delirious state either not listening to him but i think he's frantically painting on the side while gogan is trying to lecture him in this format but to me it seemed like this interesting collision of this wild properly wild figure painting with a passion that's almost uncontrollable, um, whereas Gauguin is trying to frame it within a specific intellectual format. But both were sort of, go yes. And it's but Gauguin also goes and to Tahiti. and Exactly. Yeah. It's the idea we have to abandon Western culture. Yeah. Either because you're um, moving away from it through passion, madness, or call it whatever, or because you're going away from it literally physically into the primitive lands, which is another extremely problematic term that right. modernists came up with, right? Um, because so what's the trick even? Gauguin was also painting uh, Tahitian uh, persons, but they were wearing essentially French-imported uh, textiles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but for him, it was sort of... Uh, and, and it's the ideal that it's always a painting to be sent back, right? Mm. It's... it's 
But what is interesting there is that it's in the 19th century. So even before Van Gogh and, and, and Gauguin, so it's in the 19th century with people such as, uh, I don't know, Delacroix or Jericho, where they're going to be concerned with this artist that is impassionate. And it's interesting because it's at the time in which the Royal Academies have it appeared that for the first time we have upper classes going into the training of being an artist. Because, of course, before you wouldn't want to be at the service of a random artist's workshop if you were a nobleman. What's the time period again? Uh, of what? Of when the, the upper Academy? classes are starting to train? In 19th century. Okay. Oh. So once the Royal Academies are established, it's okay for you in an upper class to go and take an official training because it's not demeaning. Going as a sort of servant to an artist's workshop was seen as demeaning and was something that an upper class would never do. They would paint a little bit maybe by themselves, but it was seen as um, a lower hmm. activity, right? And it's in the 19th century that with the officialization of painting, that's recuperated. And actually, many noble families just took painting. And it's thanks to that that we can find groups of artists that do not need to make a living through art because they already have... Um, a living for multiple oh, generations. Exactly. <laughs> and they don't have to concern themselves with that. And it is them that are going to promote this idea of art for art's sake and not for the service of a commissioner and his or her agenda. And rather, we're just going to paint what we feel and what we see and how we perceive the world. And this valuing of emotion and the passion for what you're doing is what's going to guide the the modernist ideal and the avant-garde ideal of art. And does the workshop format still exist? Like working under a master, uh, does it, is there a... Um, I think it still exists. Today? Only workshops don't exist exactly as before, but yes, I would say, but always they now exist together. I think every fine artist goes a little bit through or not every, but often you go through a fine art degree and then you work for a while as an assistant to a bigger artist. Hmm. Oh, and, and you find it across, especially because so often today art is not being physically made by the artist, right? Olaf Aurelison is not doing himself every piece of his installations. Hmm. Or, so you have big workshops that are a little bit like architectural studios, right? I, I, I mean, the, we, we were talking to this, um, one of our colleagues, uh, uncles, I think was, uh, he is a highly regarded, um, I want to say like uh, he would cast metal, cast metal sculptor. I don't know what the official term would be, um, but just massive scale. And it seemed to me like those scales of work were the precisely the things that you had to have this, master apprentice relationship maintained because there's nothing you could I mean first of all there's no way you would have the infrastructure within a university to be able to train that but on top of it there's no real possibility to experiment because a, a single pore of that is the project so you have to work on um, individual cases I, I thought that was quite interesting to see that there were pockets where you could see something that had been maintained essentially I mean you could get a glimpse into the into a few centuries it, yes, back almost absolutely absolutely and um i mean at, in a large way so there was a mural painting for the exhibition for the bobby baker exhibition and there there were assistants 
Hmm. And it worked a little bit in the same way as, you, did, were you mentioning Rembrandt before? As Rembrandt hmm. did his paintings. Rembrandt painted faces and hands. All the rest was painted by his workshop. Hmm. Hands and faces were seen by Rembrandt to be especially relevant. And then all the final touches. Well, when Bobby Baker came, I mean, we have to think hmm. Bobby Baker is, I think, next to her, near her 70s right now. 69, I think. And, uh, of course, I mean, she has um, she has had an operation in her knee, etc. So she couldn't go up into the ladders and paint the whole mural. And also there was uh, a small time to produce the on-site production because one exhibition closes, then you prepare the next one and you open right away. So she had to come and we have a week, to, we had a week to work. But it worked a little bit in a similar way. Two uh, assistant training artists that have their own art practice, but they're starting, came to be the assistant painters to a well-known artist. And they were painting the first layers, the background, the filling in and seven areas. And Bobby Baker was doing the main elements. Had, have you seen, had you seen that up close prior to that exhibit? No, prior, like see it live, not yeah. prior to that exhibit. Does that change? Uh, I mean, does that give you an additional perspective as a, as a scholar within the realm? I think it just confirms a perspective I already had and I already liked, which is um, that there's an idealization of art and the attachment to the artist and, you know, the uniqueness and the special touch and everything and I think a lot is about idea but also about collaboration and one thing that I really enjoyed seeing in in the process of this mural was artist discussion hmm. it's going to be seen as Bobby Baker's piece is piece is artwork because that's the way art history always wants to narrate things but it wasn't really just Bobby Baker's artwork it was Bobby Baker and Alicia and Nano and Elisa and that's how um, how we at least tried to recognize it in the exhibition per se. Mm. And this is something that Bobby Anna Baker and I have discussed a lot, which is she says that throughout her career, she has never wrote, well, never, rarely worked exclusively by herself. She says she finds herself more enthusiastic or productive working in collaboration, but that art history as a model doesn't really recognize collaboration. They always want to have one artist and that that has produced even problems in her working relations because because often she became the most well-known artist because of her trajectory the other partner would be invisibilized or you know mm. shadowed a little bit and it was all attributed to her can you frame her trajectory too so we have the the last sort of uh, glimpse of her life was the She's um, doing these time drawings uh, as a mother of two. Okay, so and we have... Now, what, what's, the, what's the path from... Yeah. Uh, I'm going to try to do it as uh, kind of concise and giving a clear glimpse as possible. So what we have first is the training period in which we already have instances in which she's trying to move away from painting and what she's being taught. Then we have the early experimentation, such as the installation of uh, an edible family in a mobile home, where that's she's already. 80s. No, that's still the late 70s, I think, Is or it? early 80s. Oh, okay. That one I can't remember the date. Probably early 80s. And uh, there she's um, 
starting to do a series of work where what I think is most important is that she's taking food as both a subject matter to analyze how can we understand our world, our cultures, our social relationships, our, the conditioning of everyday life through food and through the food, uh, the roles food plays, and as a material, a medium for art. And she's going to make art with food. And there we have um, then this couple of years of pause in which um, after doing a couple of artworks and installations and performances, she goes into this period in which she's only doing the time drawings as a sort of private practice to continue her practice life. And it's only in the late 80s that she goes back into performance, performance for the next couple of decades as her predominant, well, couple of decades, next two decades as her predominant uh, um, way of, of producing art, her predominant medium. And there's where we have drawing on a grandmother, uh, sorry, drawing on a mother's experience. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to take a second to explain that performance because I think it's a very interesting glimpse into the kind of work she's doing. There, that performance, who, which was replayed or reconfigured for this exhibition, and this time called Drawing on a Grandmother's Experience, because now she's become a grandmother, and she reconfigures the performance from the perspective of today and tries to analyze to what extent issues upon motherhood and daily life that were relevant in the late 80s are still relevant in 19... Uh, in 2019, you know, like uh, f almost 40 years later, we still have certain issues that are still problematic or invisible within our societies. So that performance is about her doing or playing upon the idea that she's painting an abstract painting. So she puts a sheet on the uh, on the floor. And do you know... Um, I've seen photos, yeah. Yeah, and do you know Jackson Pollock, the famous photos that were made for Life magazine in which he's doing his dripping technique and throwing painting from the can and, and so on up on, uh, on top of the canvas? She's playing upon doing the same, no? Like um, creating this drawing uh, of a mother's experience, but also playing with the idea of extracting or inspiring from a mother's experience. And there... The performance is based on the idea that each food that she's choosing to throw onto this sheet that becomes the canvas of this abstract Jackson Pollock-like painting is going to serve her to analyze a certain moment in her experience of motherhood and of her life. So, for example, the reason why my exhibition was called Tarras uh, de Chutney, Chutney Jars, is that one of the foods she's using is... Um, is actually chutney, mm. which was very hard to find in Madrid, by mm. the way, for the performance. And yeah, not as common as in the UK, I would no, assume. Yeah. No. And uh, she uses this to sort of play upon the idea of narrative and what do you narrate about the day in which you come to labor. And instead of talking about labor itself, she's talking about how worried she was that her friends had, were having to do the moving of her house for her because she went into labor the day she was moving house. Mm -hmm. And she uh, switches narrative. She plays upon how certain experiences are not the way we are told or perceived. She plays with how pleasure and tension are always present and, and, and coming at the same time, you know, and how you're enjoying a special moment, but also concerned with a million small details 
like the fact that she went into labor on top of the only carpet she didn't have time to clean before the labor process. And those worries that are inserted into the mind of certain people, like cleaning for women and how you're concerned, especially when the baby's coming with a certain perfection that you're taught to aspire. And she's tackling upon all of those issues. And so the performance is structured that way. And she goes into talking about many stages, even postpartum depression, which was a taboo, an absolute taboo in the 90s, um, in the early 90s, in the late 80s. And actually... What is unfortunate is that often that performance has been portrayed as exclusively about postpartum depression, because mm. this is, again, what plays into that narrative of art history, of the dramatic and traumatic experience being overcome through art. But this performance speaks about many things, about many details and minutia of everyday life that are exposing structures within which we're living and constraints within which we're living and um, why does that happen i mean given that i mean it is your field why is why is the art and the artist typically consumed in a one-dimensional manner i mean the way you're talking about it is doesn't seem inorganic or artificial or, or like non that, that's a very large argument should i finish depicting yeah yeah, let's her go narrative? That, yeah. and it, it, it's that's a complex argument but but we can definitely go into that so she makes this performance and this performance became incredibly recognized and traditionally perform well traditionally at that time performance is not traditional yet but because art is supposed to be unique often performance were performed once but because Bobby Baker is a young mother and she's also trying to make a living, she started to be asked to play that performance again as if it was a theater play and not an art piece. And she did it over, and I think she did it up to, I don't know, 200 or 300 times all over the States and in different places in Europe. So it became incredibly recognized because it was... And here it comes back to the issue we were talking before. What about the audiences? The incredible thing is the power of engagement and identification that Bobby Baker's art produces. And I've been, I already knew that and thought that before I did the show. I've been shocked at seeing the extent of it now that I've done the show. The capacity to engage and to communicate all these critical issues and ideas, because if art history is trying to frame her as an exception, the engagement with the audience proves it's tackling upon issues that are not very visible, but that are recognizable but by masses of people. I think this is an issue that, that sort of after modernism architecture, I don't want to say postmodern, but after just architecture after modernism. Um, the issue they still dealt with was this issue of digestibility. And this is what we were talking about, you know, mm -hmm. last time we talked. But mm -hmm. part of the issue was they, they were still, in a way, it's fascinating to read some um, self-analyses of architects of their work. And they, they talk about it as if it's um, working in a way that's digestible, uh, ingestible by a broader mm -hmm. audience, mm -hmm. working with publicly understood things but they still have to write about it in a deeply scholastic manner mm -hmm. um so it, it automatically loses that and the, 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 i think this tends to be a, a deep reaction to particularly heavy 
postmodernist uh, works of architecture is that it's even more confusing than the modernist works of architecture, even though it's supposed to be connecting to the masses. But for your what you're talking about with Bobby Baker is that there may be a type of art or a type of delivery that she's actually tapped into that that's, succeeds. Yeah, and it, it's theater. I mean, it may, it may be some relative of theater. But that, not only because. Yeah. Um, then she moves on to more things. So there's a period after that performance in which she does many performance, and she even goes into the idea of this ambitious notion of creating a quintology. Do you say quintology? I have like no trilogy, idea what that word is. Trilogy, ah. but five. Um, so five uh, stages of a performance, no? Five pieces of art that are all in one and this is uh and she was going to do it about everyday life and she said that she found it very funny to play with art which is this realm of mm, it's sort of a realm that is preserved as the best uh remains of culture of humanity right where we put the the most exceptional pieces of what we are going to produce and she was going to produce one piece that was going to be about the supermarket and the other one was about the kitchen and the other one was about a mental nursing home and it was just going to be about daily life but in the most um unconventional ways if we think about what we value about daily life, right? And and so we have a whole series of performances in which more and more she's going to move outside of the art spaces. So if she started uh, performing within exhibition spaces, like in the ICA in London, she's going to start to perform in theaters. But then not only in theaters, because that's also a sort of structure space. She's also going to go to schools, to herbal gardens, to the streets. She has this wonderful uh, piece called Pull Yourself Together, in which she's on top of a track um, shouting at people this kind of very British phrase is like... Uh, behave, pull yourself together, contain yourself, and all this kind of notions, cultural notions of how you should appear to the the rest. And this is in parallel to a period in which she, as she says it herself, she's increasingly going crazy. All of the pressures of her life and this touring and the kids and lack of money and so on. Um, and as she tells in another performance, the death of her father when she was an adolescent in a very traumatic way and so on, leads to a moment in which she is uh, diagnosed as having a mental disorder and is goes through a period of around 10 years. From what, what's the time frame here? What's the... the so uh, the 1990s is the period in which she's highly active as a performance artist and starting to feel... Uh, the pressures of stress and it's uh, I think in 2001 or 2002 when she is uh, no that's the period in which she already she's producing her work it's the late 90s and early 2000s that she's going to be for 10 years um, in and out mental institutions. That's when she first gets diagnosed in the yes. late 90s. Yeah. I see. Okay. And uh, there she's going to do a little bit as a fo following of that pattern of the time drawing. She's going to do a series called Diary Drawings. And in Diary Drawings, uh, and she then produces out of that a work that's called Diary Drawings, Mental Illness and Me. And each day or almost each day of... Uh, 
the days in which she was in the day centers or in the mental clinics, etc. She creates drawings in which she's trying to articulate and visualize her experience, right, as uh, first a mental patient, but also a, can a cancer patient later. Actually, a cancer patient who was not identified as having cancer because they thought that the lump she was noticing in her breast was part of her mental sickness, and they wouldn't treat, like they wouldn't do the necessary explorations. And it is only later on she goes to an alternative medical institution and. They identify the cancer and then it's recognized. So, and this is actually what's called a misdiagnose. There, there is a particular term of this kind of misdiagnosis in which a mental diagnosis kind of um, produces a situation in which the medical community doesn't go on to find other physical problems because everything is attached to your mental. Yeah, situation. they think it's psychosomatic, right? Exactly. And so during this period, she's producing, again, drawing. She's going back to drawing, although she's still performing. And uh, she then says, no, no, no one considered that maybe the level of work I uh, and the level of pressure with the tours, the international tours and so on, was part of the problem for my mental illness. So I was banned from living with my family and I was banned from this and that, but I was still going on tours and it's like the high demand on the recognized artist. And what is very interesting is that at the end of that period, she produced an installation, this installation called Diary Drawings, Mental Illness, and Me. Um, it runs over, I think it's only five years. I think it recovers the materials from 2001 to 2005, or from 2002 to 2005. And... Um, what we see there is a selection of drawings with an amount of text in which what she's doing is, and it's a selection of drawings that she's photographing. Her husband is actually photographing her ex-husband by the end of this process. Um, and it's an installation that sort of creates a narrative. And what it's very interesting is that it's often seen as this direct window into what it is to be mentally ill, right? Because you're seeing the drawings that she's actually making every day. And what is generally under notice by the criticism often in the media is the fact that it is a highly selected material. So she has probably, I don't know, like, two, three thousand drawings, and we're only seeing 31. And mm. we're seeing those 31 with texts and captions that Bobby Baker has articulated. So there is a very controlled editing and discourse on the part of the artist. And this is something that is generally ignored, and I think voluntarily ignored, with what is called autobiographical art. There is this treatment of autobiographical art as if it was just an open heart surgery. You're seeing the insights of the artist right away. But when the artist is producing an artwork, there is a selection, there is a configuration, there is a narrative taking place, and there is often an idea and an argument that is being put into play. And here there's a strong criticism of certain mental and psychiatric practices, and particularly within that, the process of becoming a subaltern the moment you are sick. So the fact that the patient doesn't have a voice and the patient is considered to be blind to an understanding of his own self. 
Mm. Right. So because he's too close to the subject, he can't have objective analysis as the expert. And then Bobby Baker goes on to play a lot in her performances with the figure of the expert and what gives you authorship and knowledge and recognition of authority within our culture and what does not. And when do you position yourself in one side or another? And she goes on to then create this um, uh, organization called Daily Life LTD which promotes her own work, but also the work of artists that have treated the subject of mental illness or struggled with mental illness and to promote the visibility of mental illness in other ways. Because one thing that Bobby Baker said is that it is a realm that is highly taboo. So if in the first part of her work and life, she's experimenting with that, which is sort of invisible because it's irrelevant and it's way too common and too to detail to be worth talking about. In the second stage of her life, she's tackling upon things that are incredibly taboo. Humans, bod uh, female bodies, the aging female body, and the deceased uh, mind and body. Um, and she says that one thing that she discovered is that when she was mentally ill for 10 years, she heard from very few people. And by the end of that period, she had breast cancer. And the amount of letters and calls and, and recognition from friends and family that she received was overwhelming. And it made her realize that it's not that those people didn't care during the period of mental uh, disorder or whatever, but it's that certain things are allowed to be voiced and to be spoken of in a much more open way than others. And you can go to a shop in the UK and buy a card th saying, I hope, uh, I don't know, your operation goes well, but there's no card that says, I hope your electroshock will go well. Mm. Right? So uh, to put it very extreme, yeah, yeah. Uh, but there is a code of what can be spoken of. So she decides after this period to dedicate um, a serious amount of work to that. And that's... Uh, and interestingly, it's that piece uh, that became the most famous piece of all, the most visible work of all, because it's often mediated as, oh, we have the opportunity of seeing this rare species, no? Uniformed individuals looking at the rare one. So this idea of the artist being special because they have uh, an extravagant life to right. a certain extent. And, and the body of work, though, you're talking about is the is the day-to-day. The diary drawings. Yeah, I see. So they became yeah. very famous, the, the installation diary drawings, I think in part because mental illness is can be sold in a very sensationalistic way. Mm. Whereas other parts of her work that are also very critical cannot be sold in as much a sensationalistic way. And with mm -hmm. sensationalistic, well, you know what I mean, this narrative of... Um, the artist is telling us what she feels and what she lived through. Mm. And there's no critical or argumentative reflection. No? And for um, you, it traces back all the way to Vasari. No? Yeah. <laughs> and so when do you, when do you step in uh, to Bobby Baker's um, circle? When you, you, I assume you, the way you framed it, you saw her work or, or studied her work prior to meeting her. Yes, and yes, and it was. I learned about her work before diary drawings were released, 
And I was actually, I'm now not sure if I was in London already doing my research or visiting London, but I had the chance to go to that exhibition in which she exhibited the diary drawings. And that's where I got more in contact with her work again and where my friends organized um, a dinner so I could meet the artist because I was very interested in what she was doing. And because at one point I thought I'll just write about the diary drawings in my PhD. But then I understood it was a misrepresentation of what this is, artist is doing and the trajectory if I only look at that. And I didn't want to isolate that piece because I think it's important seen in relationship to this practice of extracting, um, making visible what everyday life holds and it's made either to be seen as rare or, or uninteresting. How did you grasp that? Did, did you grasp it upon meeting Bobby? I grasped that, I think, um, maybe because I had been in contact with her work before this series was released, and also because I was already in the midst of doing my PhD, and I was encountering this problem, also with Mona Hatoum, this fascinating artist that, she's a Lebanese artist, um, living in UK, uh, and with a very mixed identitarian origin. And she does this fascinating uh, conceptual pieces in which the mat materials she chooses for her work are very interesting because she uses hair, but also highly minimalistic, for example, structures and metal structures. And it's a combination of uh, the materials that are accepted for art and the ones that are not that are very playful and she works with also everyday objects made into huge scales. For example, a huge grinder that talks about the aggressiveness, for example, in the home or in the everyday objects. And she plays a lot with um, political torture and incarceration and everyday objects. And um, she creates like this electrical circuits with everyday objects so she plays between those tensions and she's working uh, while her whole family is, is uh, back in Lebanon and mm. living through the war so she's trading all these subjects and what is interesting is that again one of the pieces that for many years now she's become very famous but for many years the one of the pieces that was the most known was um, oh, I'm forgetting the name of the work now uh, measures of distance a piece a video piece in which she's using the letters she's receiving from her mother from Lebanon while the war is going on in Lebanon and the last photograph she took of her mother in the shower on her last visit because before the war broke while she was studying in London and it's a very emotive piece and it's very interesting because it does speak about the emotions of her mother and you understand what she must be writing to her uh, in response uh, to what, through the responses that her mother is giving her. And it also at one point is interrupted, right? And there's correspondence stops arriving and, and uh, you hear the bombing and et cetera. So it's a piece that is highly emotional in that sense. But again, it's very edited. You only see fragments 
you the fragments are translated by the artist and not all of it and you hear pieces of phone conversation in a language that the audience that it's played for the british audience does not understand and therefore the fact that it's the most famous work because it shows us the trauma of distance and exile mm. and etc is almost diminishing the artistic capacity of the artist if you only look at it as pure testimony and this is and and this kind of works was what i was already studying when i got to see this piece and i was already very conscious of that that there is a problem there is a mistreatment of artists if we see them as just providers of confession or testimony mm. as if that didn't have any cre any mm, artistic or creative or critical agency Right? Mm. You're depriving them of the fact that they're creating a discourse like everybody yeah, else. Yeah, you deprive them of authorship almost. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And they're then almost just interesting as subjects of study and observation. Yeah. And and this is more or less the argument I wanted to both analyze mm. in the PhD and counteract with the exhibition. Mm. And the interesting thing when we go back to thinking about the audiences is that for the audiences most general audiences, the lay audience, as we were saying, uh, in lack of a better term. It's maybe a means of initial connection, like this is a true story that happened to this person. But audiences seem to move very easily away from just that narrative and see connections and understandings and that peace measures of distance speaks about the complexities of closeness and distance that don't have to do with space and time, right? And, and that is something that is abstract and that can link to many experiences. The way you frame the, I think, the general tendency to infantilize audiences, I, I think that's pretty much hits the nail on the head. I mean, in terms of how within architecture and urbanism too, how the... I don't know, the user, even as a term, is such a bizarre... Um, I mean, it's a, it's a very bizarre way to conceptualize the broader public. But it's quite funny that even within this conversation, we have difficulty finding a term that, you know, the lay... That, it, that and the, doesn't have some dismissive implication, no? Non-specialized, maybe, audiences or something, that they're not trained in that particular uh, area. One question I had. So, if you're, you're, you're in what year of the PhD when you when you have this chance to meet? It's, here I have to confess my biggest problem and probably the reason why I've always been challenging the traditional idea of selfhood. It is that I never know when anything happens. Have you, <laughs> <laughs> like, m my notion of time? And it's funny for an art historian is that. I can't make linear narratives. It's impossible for so me. So my I questioning is horrifying for it's you. It's <laughs> horrifying. I actually would need my CV in front of me to be checking. And, and my husband is the opposite. So I'm always asking him, like, how old am I? And <laughs> when did we, <laughs> when was our child born? And Anniversaries, things, like, things of that sort, out the window. It's not, I mean, repetitive dates, I know. I know. Yeah. I mean, I know someone is born on the 16th of May or whatever. But which year things happen? The fact that people can narrate their life in numbers is... 
And you chose to be a historian. <laughs> and I ch mis <laughs> miserably for me. And I also don't have a good memory for names. So that's why I think I'm a theoretical historian in the end so much more. No, a visual theorist. Yeah, it's a I, masochistic choice. Yeah. It, is, it is a little bit of a masochistic choice. So uh, let, let, let's think of it as events. Were you before the you started writing? Were you in the midst of writing? I was, let's see, I must have been two years into my writing of my PhD. So okay. it must have been, I don't know, 2011, 12, or 13. Okay. One of those three And years. so when you're, when you're um, given the chance to meet Bobby Baker as a researcher, this is one topic that we had talked about right prior to this is um, within anthropology, sociology, this notion of an informant, an insider, mm -hmm. Uh, typically there's a, um, a line you don't break, uh, a sort of relationship you don't form mm -hmm. to maintain objectivity. Was there um, an introspection about that or was it, oh, Bobby Baker, yeah, that'd be great to meet Bobby? Um, well, because, uh, let's say, no, initially no problem, excited to meet Bobby Baker, and you don't initially find any problem because you often interview artists if they are alive because they can provide notions about things that you wish you could art ask artists from the past. Like, for example, did you know about this other artist when you were producing this? Or, I don't know, have you... Um, what was your relationship with this museum? Did you... Because, for example, many artists have are producing things nowadays under commission again, right? Uh because there are bigger works that are maybe paid by a museum or by a certain artist fund or whatever, and therefore sometimes there are limitations to what they can do or what they not. Those type of questions are interesting for research. So there's no problem initially admitting them. I now, after, I was going to say five years, but we're in 2019, no? So yeah, probably six, seven years, I don't know, of knowing Bobby Baker, but particularly for the past three years of being intensely in contact with her now I'm starting to question can I write the article I wanted to write at the end of the exhibition because I can write the text for the exhibition because those are part of an abstract discourse or not directly only about this or that work because the works are there and the works are going to be interpreted by the public and I don't want to describe the works to the public I want the public to see them without my description but an academic article is different there you have to go into the work and analyze the work because the work is not there in front of the reader. And I now feel I'm too passionate about this. I'm, mm. I, I'm, I'm not sure I could be critical of her work because I'm very celebratory. I find it fascinating and really strong and really powerful and fantastic. So I can play around it, trying not to do one thing or the other. Um, but I think that's always a little bit of a limitation. Once you love also the person and not only the artistic persona. I think, I mean, if you even try to play around it, you're still reacting to what exists. See, the other option is being upfront about it. And yeah. this is something that feminist art history taught me and I already used in my PhD, which is mm, the reason why you're selecting certain research subjects, the, research, the reason why you're selecting certain works often have to do with uh, non-purely objective, distant, and academic reasons. It calls or, or attracts you in various ways and trying to recognize 
the lack of absolute objectivity is very important. Yeah, I mean that's I think there's a there's a there's a famous assertion by uh, American historian Howard Zinn. He speaks very similarly in that he um uh I think in his upbringing he saw how history was portrayed as being um an authorless objective mm-hmm. work. We yeah and and then he uh the way he frames it is you know a historian will have to select from a vast quantity of data and that selection itself has to do with the um, conscious unconscious uh, vocalized non-vocalized underpinning sort of what calls his attention for so many reasons no and and i tried um so the first thing for me was when i was doing my master thesis in edinburgh to say can I write it as I and not as we? And thank God I had this fantastic uh, supervisor that said, actually, I encourage you to do that for the rest of your academic career because who is we? And why is that supposed to be an agreement? You're proposing an argument and you're selecting some data and you're defending a point and that's no your... So you have I in the in the dissertation. Yeah. Interesting. I, there's a one um, urban historian by the name of Spiro Kostov, mm-hmm. who actually I think he graduated from a um, uh, uh, high school in Turkey called Robert College, but it's this high school uh, who have uh, family members who've gone through there too, but produced some of the very high and heavy hitting intellectuals of Turkish society, like Orhan Pamuk is from there, and so mm-hmm. on. Um, but he. He, he, I mean, he wrote, I, I feel like he he died very young from what I grasp, but within his uh, very early, uh, very quick sort of trajectory, published so much, um, so many volumes of work. But within his work, it was I. It's the first time I encountered that, uh, what is it, a pronoun? Uh, <laughs> but yeah, the, the, it was quite fascinating. And he had some humor sort of embedded into it. And I yes. thought it was... The work spoke for itself. And you can reflect on those very instances that instead of undermining the power of knowledge production that your work has, can reinforce it because you're detecting and being upfront about maybe certain limitations, biases, perspectives, uh, connections, whatever. So I think I'll have to do that for the academic paper. Well, even there's if you no don't. way I can stand back and be objective all of a sudden about Bobby Baker's work. But uh, even methodologically, it's quite. I mean, it, it seems like if you can't write about Baker, what you've formed is a uh, a deep relationship with her and the impact on on on. I mean, that in itself would be a, quite a fascinating paper, I would think, in terms of methodology, limitations of objectivity, and and also. At the same time as there is, I like her as a person. I really enjoy have spending time with her and just chatting. Like now, sometimes because we miss being in contact for work purposes, we just call each other, and she shows me her garden and her dog, and I don't know, and I show her Tomas and my my boy. So there's that side of it that I just like her, mm. no? and I mean. I guess you have to train a certain distance always in your work sphere. Because one thing that happens to me, I don't know I have if I have a disproportional maternal instinct or a nostalgia for youth or something, but I feel a certain kind of tenderness for every each of one of my students. 
if he's a good student because he's a good student, if he's the distracted student because he's a, oh, how funny, he's the distracted student, whatever, they always, and you always have to be able to forget that person and correct essays and, I don't know, evaluate papers. So you always have to do an exercise of that. But I think besides the fact of having liked her and really, really enjoyed her as a person, this closeness has brought a lot of deep conversation in purely intellectual terms. Was there a moment where you saw the, the, the exercise of distance beginning to break? And I mean, did you have a moment of reflection where you saw that this is going a bit um, beyond the objective or the... the this, I think yeah. it's always, I mean, as I said, it already started with my master thesis subject, considering it not purely objective. And mm. why was I interested in this particular side of inquiry as not purely objective? As First of all, probably having to do with my position as a female Spanish student studying in an Anglo-Saxon university where most of the voices of art historians were male detached subjects and already identifying with those artists that I was studying for a certain position. No, um, What I'm saying is I don't know where I started finding absolute objectivity falling apart a little bit. I always tried to play upon it. In the case with Bobby Baker, I don't know. I reflected it, about it later on when I yeah. started after the exhibition and I said, now I want to write a paper about this. Actually, I want to write a paper about how the performance of the uh, 1989 changes with the one she performed last year. Um, I mean, last year. <laughs> As you see, my yeah, time frames. Yeah. <laughs> last <laughs> two months ago or something like that. <laughs> Um, but, um, so when I started to think about that paper after the exhibition and how those two performances are the same performance reinterpret and what has changed and what is she able to formulate and why is she formulating it in certain terms, for example, something that is very interesting to me is that in the first performance, she didn't speak about a gynecological infection because hmm. she said, oh, I won't go into the detail of women's uh, troubles, you know? And because it was taboo to to speak about it that. It was beyond taboo for her. Well, she plays in the performance with, uh. oh, to the audience, like, oh, don't worry, my dear, like very much in the British kind of code, mm. like, oh, dear, don't worry, I, I won't bother you with Britain, with uh, women's troubles and so on. Mm. So she would play with the existence of that taboo by respecting it, right? Uh, but in this performance, she, for example, went into describing the, that very gyne gynecological problem she had had as a, after giving birth. But she does it through extremely medicalized language, through mm. the most medical and objective terms. And in a way, I think some things are tolerated nowadays as long as you do them through, as you speak about them through certain codes. So if you mm. speak about physiological things through medical terms it's okay if it's through colloquial terms it's not right mm -hmm. so again the boundaries of what's so i started thinking about oh i would like to write a paper upon like those boundaries visibility what has changed um etc and it's there when i started to think uh <laughs> i think i'm too passionate now mm. i'm too celebratory of everything single thing i I think 
uh, it's just a reason to think about your methodology, methodology once more and reflect how are you going to go about this problem. Not that the not that it is an unsolvable problem. I think every research and every paper has its methodological struggle. So how mm. are you going to address the fact that the artist is now your friend, mm. <laughs> not only a person you have worked with, no? which was what happened in the beginning. So some way along the last two years, we became friends too. And I think there's where um, subjectivity becomes probably too powerful. Yeah, I assume if you have a footnote citing a FaceTime uh, meeting, uh, you know. Is there is there um, maybe the way to ask it is, do you have enough artists in your life now? Like, is there a... Competition of artists and well, is there, <laughs> sort of level this. Is there is there a, is there a, um, if you were to have a, a similar opportunity to get that kind of deep insight into another artist, would it be something that you would try to take on, uh, maybe personally, but also in terms of research I, output? I think I've sort of adopted it a little bit as a professional strategy. So probably yes. I, in in retrospect. The way Bobby Baker works, which has infiltrated into the way I work, is from the very start, uh, she plays in the work scenario with the very issues she's tackling in her art. So we can be having a conversation about, I don't know, Daniel Miller and the effect, uh, this anthropologist that studies uh, everyday objects in our daily life in Western cultures and how uh, the settings and the frames and the objects we are surrounded by configure our expectations and our behaviors in ways we don't know. And we can be discussing that text and then suddenly she's like, oops, look, uh, I'm going to send you over a photo of the meringue I've been making all morning. Mm. No, and And it was always like glimpses of random everydayness were inserted into the most academic or intellectual discussions or we were be cho- we would be choosing i don't know a certain font for the text of the exhibition and in between uh there's like oh look there's biscuit biscuit is the name of her dog look at mm. biscuit he's coming along and I started doing it as well, and then we came to do it with the people at La Casa Encendida, this sort of playing with the reality that we're not, it's sort of being upfront with the reality that we're not academics when we come into this space or, you know, switch into the academic mode and isolate all the rest, and then you move on and you're a mother, and then you move on and you're a daughter and your friend and or your taking care of a home I don't know it was playing into the intertwining of all of it and that brings up a closeness and yes a liking of that person but it also it's sort of a gesture of activism to my mind it's mm. almost a political stand towards work and the way we treat work and the war and the way Work works upon us. <laughs> that is not too yeah. convoluted, and and I sort of like it. So I think it's interesting to practice it. There are realms in which I feel less comfortable, like for example, in our circle within the the university. I think tr- that transgression is a bit more difficult. I think in academia, you're so expected to be an academic meaning to bring your personal life into yeah that i find that actually weighs quite um 
it can weigh heavily on you even in terms of how you uh for instance in segovia being a small town mm-hmm. relatively speaking you you do encounter your students throughout the town so i remember having this issue um so the turkish uh, traditionally uh, for instance my my grandfather <clears throat> both grandfathers um they most likely wouldn't ever be caught wearing shorts mm-hmm. in the city yeah. just something about this, this shorts this is very spanish too like yeah. the, the previous generation and my uh <laughs> my mother is still abhorred by uh for example my husband wearing shorts, shorts. yeah like, okay he's american but still yeah. no like put some pants on yeah, yeah. <laughs> no that but i i remember like the so there's a trash can right outside of our apartment and the question is do you put pants on to, <laughs> to go, go take out the trash do you change your shirt to go and then i remember my wife just saying i mean come on just relax just go out and, and i think that's throw helpful the trash actually already. yeah to that, for actually students to see uh your human side for me it's less concerning the students as the colleagues like i feel mm. and i don't know if this has to do um i don't know um more for a woman than for a man or not or more if you're a little younger as an academic or not like i don't know what makes you a little bit less sure of a certain authority position but something i really felt when i started my academic career is that i had to sort of fill the part a little bit and mm. be um more serious in it and more formal and have this clear or clean surface you know that you show to the academic realm with a certain kind of conversation and um and maybe this is also the particular circumstance of the exhibition is that and this has just happened all the people that collaborated in the show except for one person were all well except for two were all young mothers with kids but the possibility of i don't know coming into work and saying of i was just thrown up from head to toes and i had to change fully and just kind of i've left a pile of puked clothes in the entrance of my home because i had to rush here that's something i would never say in a meeting with you and david and laura and but that's a transgression yeah that i feel more comfortable in other realms of the art world and not really in academia. I found actually one thing that I didn't think would have been the case, uh but having these sort of discussions um I, from the beginning I thought I would avoid uh talking to folks within my field. Mm-hmm. Um the interdisciplinary stuff uh gets rid of all that mm-hmm. all that weight mm-hmm. of of what the discourse pushes back. I found that very liberating as a whole with these things. And probably it relaxes us both. Yeah. Like I and that's why probably I say with students are different. Uh it's different cuz I know more about art than my students and I know more about art than you and you know more about architecture than I and so we're both comfortable in our field and we're both comfortable tackling the other field without being a complete expert, no? Yeah. and that gives i think uh freedom to the conversation mm. to even step into middle ground we none of us are very um, like specialized in and and feel comfortable just having a conversation with students too what i found fascinating um is is the i mean there are things that students bring up that i've never heard of mm-hmm. uh just the depth of of 
or the width this was something that we were mentioning with a uh, balder i think two discussions ago but that the discourse as a whole shifts from being deep to wide and there's examples that people can bring <laughs> that you have no idea of and i felt that was um for me it was very liberating that at any point a first year student could bring up an urban example that you've never heard of or a pocket of Absolutely. urban history that you've never encountered and especially here i mean uh yeah <laughs> we're teaching people from all over uh the world or maybe that's exaggerated but from very very many places how will you know and also in that sense i've always been maybe it's because i'm in contemporary art and in contemporary art you have to accept the fact that because things are coming up and going you can't know everything it's, yeah. you should be able to know every single major renaissance artist because you've had five centuries to <laughs> gain perspective and learn about it now not so I think I've always had a little bit of a relaxation in that sense that, oh, I don't know this artist. And that was comfortable for me from the start with the students. Mm. I don't know the artist. I know the means through which to look at it and to try to explore it, which is what you yeah. need in the end. No? Yeah, no, I think I think that's that's a, a point of emphasis that I think students find relaxing, too, is mm -hmm. the notion that in a way, grad school, PhD is this very... Um, unusual uh, experience to go through and that it gives you essentially five seven eight years to read mm -hmm. and, and digest at a, um, a a quantity of literature that most other humans don't have the time or patience to do it's such a luxury now yeah i look back at it i'll never be able to read in the same way no no it's true i bet that gives you such a um, almost a vast body of sometimes useful sometimes not useful things lurking about your head that uh you know it, you, if you just frame it that way you most likely have encountered things or observations or analyses that students may be encountering for the first time and most likely you've asked a series of questions that they're in the first steps of mm -hmm. and if you frame it that way i found the the authority non-authority thing the hierarchy thing completely collapses and it just exactly. becomes oh You've asked this question, maybe. What's the what's the one that follows? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The one difficulty I had actually is that you, um, or one of the difficulties is that sometimes you want to fast forward the series of questions to the end one, but the the end doesn't make sense without the path. So With you have to others. sort of weave uh, the through path them. through. Yeah. And um, I think probably that was my approach to teaching from the start precisely and to studying and everything precisely because of this lack of factual memory I, I have which is I can always find the facts I need uh, as a certain research takes place it's the ability or the tools to look for certain questions or problematize certain things that is relevant you know, to me and then I try to play with that and it is true that then you want to or Sometimes it's also artificial. You have this line of questions that you've thought of in your own way, but maybe the student will alter the order or follow through into certain questions through other paths. You know? And I think there's a voice there for patience that we need to have that I'm not particularly strong at, but you mm -hmm. have to train as a professor not to... Um, that you're not guiding through your path, you're guiding exactly. through a path. You're trying to help... Yeah 
develop a train of thought and and keep that train of thought critical and and using real facts and i don't know uh, building good arguments and not just uh, opinionated or whatever but you have to let that certain path develop be built i think help is probably the key word there my mm-hmm. advisor would had this really good word for how the built world affects um socioeconomic fabrics you would say supports mm-hmm. and that's uh i think i kept insisting that he, he should just write a book on these words that he uses nonchalantly but mm-hmm. it has deep impacts on how you look at things but i think in academics probably you that's a good word to use as well that you're supporting mm-hmm. the development of critical and analytical faculties and and the and path, helping guide you know. like the only uh, the very idea that after one question needs to come a couple others it's a way of guiding into no continuing yeah. that process of thought that has to be uh made by the student but that is yes supported and and guided by us and i guess that's the same thing that happens with the viewer no of an exhibition mm. or that's the ideal role that i would want to take or that i wanted to take here as a creator i don't want to be the narrator of how you should understand bobby baker and i wouldn't want to tell each viewer how to see the work but it's rather i'm giving you first all the elements i'm giving you the works in the sense that i've managed to get a museum to show them no and finance and that and then i'm trying to set a frame for you to develop that path of interrogation or engagement or attention to here or there depending on what you're interested in and and not and I, and i think that's important for an exhibition mm. i think an exhibition shouldn't be nor an exhibition nor a class should be a paper or a book no i think mm. in one you are making your argument and in the other one you're not making your argument you're opening space for Or well, that's my no. I think that's a that's a great way to approach it. And ideally, I suppose a book um, could be supporting the same thing mm-hmm. that you may be, you know, putting a series of points across or mm-hmm. weaving a certain fabric and supporting the formation of other things. Anyway, Clara. So we've gone from uh, Bobby Baker to Vasari <laughs> um, to, to Picasso and Picasso. Pollock yeah. and George O'Keefe. Yeah, we got the whole whole <laughs> gist of a wide range of things. But thank you. That's been great. It's been wonderful. Thank yeah. you, Chim.